0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One new book from Verso that might be of interest is Futures of Black Radicalism, edited by Gay Teresa Johnson and Alex Lubin. Black rebellion has returned. Dramatic protests have risen up in scores of cities and campuses there is renewed engagement with the history of black radical movements and thought. Here, key intellectuals, inspired by the new movements and by the seminal work of the scholar Cedric J. Robinson, recall the powerful tradition of black radicalism while defining new directions for the activists and thinkers it inspires. This book makes clear that new black radical politics is thoroughly internationalist and redraws the links between black resistance and anti-capitalism. Futures of Black Radicalism features the key voices in this new intellectual wave, including Greg Burris, Jordan T. Camp, Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and many more. Futures of Black Radicalism, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today I'm interviewing my friend Nizhmi Zarenko, an organizer in my beloved adopted home city of Philadelphia. I talked to Nijmi for one of my first episodes early last year, and we discussed how to think about how organizers should think about race and class as Trump took office. Today, we're going to talk more concretely about the organizing work she's involved in as part of the Pennsylvania-wide group Put People First PA and its role in launching a new Poor People's Campaign, which is modeled off the original Poor People's Campaign launched by Martin Luther King and others shortly before his assassination 50 years ago. Real quick, we need your support to make this podcast happen. More than 700 of you have already gone to patreon.com slash the dig and made a contribution. We appreciate that very much, and I encourage the rest of you who listen regularly and like the show to support it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We need your support, and we are also very thankful for it. And... On a personal and professional note today, I just published a lengthy investigation at Slate.com that I've been working on for quite a while, looking into this really disturbing phenomenon of prosecutors charging drug dealers, who are often merely users, with homicide-type charges when the opioids they sell result in a fatal overdose. It's a total nightmare, obviously, and I'll link to that Slate story of mine in the show notes. Without further ado, here is Nijmi Zakia Zurinko, a Black and Indigenous woman who grew up in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, who is the co-founder of Put People First PA and a leader in the Poor People's Campaign, National Call for Moral Revival. Nishmi Zorinko, welcome back to the dig.
1: Thanks so much, Dan. I'm happy to be here.
0: You are one of the smartest organizers that I know, and you've been hard at work on an exciting project that I want to talk to you about today, and that's a new Poor People's Campaign. So, just to set the table before we get more into depth about all of this stuff, can you lay out in brief what the new campaign is and what the old campaign was, and then we'll get into more details.
1: Definitely. And first, you know, I just want to say that um, I've been an organizer for about 20 years now. And, um, you know, I fell into it um, coming out of my own life experience. And in that time, you know, I've started and I've turned around organizations and I've worked on campaigns that have won um, you know demands around education and kept schools open gotten schools off the closing list um, you know implemented restorative practices uh, worked on campaigns to win um, you know a land bank here in Philadelphia um, you know co-founded Groups that still exist and are going strong, um, and the Poor People's Campaign, uh, National Call for Moral Revival, uh, is something that I've been working to prepare for and laying the groundwork for for the last ten years, and it's the most exciting thing uh, that I have done, and I am incredibly excited for it. Um, after these, all of these different things. Um, that are all connected uh that have happened in the last 20 years.
0: Well, I'm glad so, you said all, I'm glad you actually started off by saying all of that cuz I do want to underline I guess before we even get into my first question just a brief overview of the organizing background that you're coming out of. Um I met you initially when I was a reporter in Philly and you were in your final years at the Philadelphia Student Union. Um, which is just one of one of many things that you've done. But if you could just briefly briefly underline that, because the fact that you're saying this is the most exciting, biggest deal thing that you've worked on is saying a lot.
1: Yeah. So I I worked in with uh, the Philadelphia Student Union um, as an organizer, assistant director, and later executive director over the course of almost ten years in two different parts. Um, and so that, you know, working around public education and I'm a product of public schools uh, has been a a really significant piece of my work and also working with young people, which is something that I'm very committed to and also really is rooted in my own life experience of uh, almost not making it <laughs> um, growing up. And so... Um, You know, that work has been very foundational for me. I've worked around housing issues, um, actually started um, as a precursor to the founding of the Media Mobilizing Project. um, A group of us here in Philadelphia who were supporting um, a bunch of housing work happening in North Philly through an organization called the Community Leadership Institute. Um, and that later um, grew into something called the Community Preservation Network, which was a whole network of community-based organizations fighting eminent domain and working around housing issues. And that uh, housing organizing is part of what um, was a precursor to co-founding the Media Mobilizing Project, which I did with a number of folks in 2005. Um, and that, you know, has been another, um, thing that's near and dear to my heart is housing and access to land and housing as a human right. Um, and then, you know, in more recent years, in the last five years, um, co-founded put people first PA, which is a statewide grassroots based building organization, organizing for healthcare. Um, and, um, you know, around the idea that healthcare is a human right and also a way of really uniting um, our class, the working class. Um, and that is deeply connected to the work of the new poor people's campaign. And so I think that the trajectory of my work has been influenced um, for definitely the last 10 years through becoming involved with something called the Poverty Initiative um, up at Union Theological Seminary, which is now the Cairo Center, which is one of the co-convening organizations of the New Poor People's Campaign. And through the Poverty Initiative, we worked for 10 years to build relationships among organizations throughout the country that are led by poor and dispossessed people. Uh, to build and to network those organizations together, to build relationships, to do study, to share lessons from campaigns. Um, And all of that work has kind of laid, helped to lay the groundwork for what is happening now.
0: So what is the new Poor People's Campaign? And by way of introduction to that, what was the old Poor People's Campaign?
1: First of all, I want to say that... um, I know you often like to say that I'm a practitioner, eh, which is a great word. And I am a practitioner um, and I'm not a scholar in that sense of the word, although I would say that I'm an organic intellectual.
0: (laughs) I would would endorse that assessment, that (laughs) (laughs) self-assessment.
1: And so I don't speak on this as a scholar, right, of the original Poor People's Campaign Um, But as someone who has studied it and also draws heavily from the work of colleagues like uh, Dr. Colleen Wessel-McCoy, who is uh, part of the Cairo Center and who recently um, completed a dissertation on the original campaign and is one of the preeminent scholars right now on the, the Poor People's Campaign, sort of connected to the new campaign as well. Um, The original campaign is the last thing that Martin Luther King did before he was assassinated. And I think that in general, the commonly held belief is that it contributed to making him a target um, of the powers that be. Um, And I think that the, you know, it's often talked about that, you know, there was a shift in his thinking. And him, as well as others, he was not the only person. I really also want to lift up the role of the National Welfare Rights Organization. Yes, um, Johnny, George Wiley. Yes, and Johnny Tillman and others in this as well. Um, but this move from thinking about civil rights to human rights, um, and this understanding that you know we can gain political rights and we can expand political rights, but a lack of economic rights makes the fulfillment of political rights impossible. So there's this, you know, famous quote from King, you know, we won the right to sit at the lunch counter, but then we didn't have enough money to buy a hamburger. And I think that's something that we, um, you know, experience. I think that sounds familiar, right? (laughs) Um, At the time of the campaign in 1968, the official official poverty rate was 12.8%, and in 2016, it was 13.5%. And so the vision um, of the campaign was to bring together poor and dispossessed people who previously had not worked together before, and to unite leaders um, from across the country. And there were um, a very diverse array of leaders that King brought together. And I think you listened to a little speech that he gave.
0: This is a clip, I think, of King's remarks at a meeting of the Committee of 100, which was a multiracial group of leaders from poor, black, white, Latino and American Indian organizations. Mm -hmm. And they were preparing for Resurrection City at the time, which was the big poor people's march on Washington that was being planned.
1: We assemble here together today with common problems uh, bringing together ethnic groups that maybe have not been together in this type of meeting in the past. I know I haven't been uh, in a meeting like this, and it's been one of my dreams that we would come together and realize our common problems, power for poor people, will really mean Having the ability, the togetherness, the assertiveness, and the aggressiveness to make the power structure of this nation say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. You know, it was this bringing together um, of folks who hadn't necessarily worked together before. Um and in practical terms, right, I think that the first caravan arrived in Washington on May 12th of 1968. And by the end of June, um the the encampment, which was called Resurrection City, uh, was over. And so, and and in during that time, King was assassinated. Um and so You know, in practical terms, while
0: while supporting a sanitation worker strike in in Memphis, so there's this class militancy underlying this whole moment.
1: Absolutely. So, in practical terms, um, you know, there it was. It wasn't long, um, but it uh, marked a significant shift um, in the thinking uh, of the civil rights era, um, and. In many ways, you know, the folks that were around King, based on my understanding and from what I've read and also heard from first-person accounts, didn't necessarily understand with or agree with this vision, um, the leaders in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and others, which I think is all the more uh, reason that the campaign didn't continue um, after his death. And one of the reasons why, you know, our our movement spawned the slogan of many Martins, right? This idea that it can't rest on one person or one figurehead. Um, we have to have many, many, many leaders that not only are involved but are very, very deeply committed and clear about strategy and about unity.
0: So it it, it did pretty much in the in this case fall apart after King was assassinated because it was a very, it was a controversial idea at the time. This was in a period in the civil rights movement when the movement had successfully defeated caste subjugation and state backed terror in the South, but was now looking at this bigger picture, as you said, of being able to sit at the counter but not being able to order afford a Florida hamburger, and looking at the North where segregation, unemployment, and just this kind of routinized police abuse proved. I think, in many ways, a much harder target um, than the already very hard target of of bringing down uh, de jure segregation in the South.
1: Yes, and this was this you know question and what King put forward you know in a really eloquent way um, about a radical revolution of values, right? And the idea that the Poor People's Campaign was going to tie together in a way that hadn't been before poverty, racism, and militarism. Um, and you know, the conception that, um, actually to fight racism, uh, we also have to fight poverty and we have to fight militarism and they're inextricably linked together. And that, um, was something that hadn't necessarily been, uh, the way of working before. And in the new campaign, we bring, uh, environmental destruction into that mix as well. Um, sometimes we talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Fitting metaphor. Yeah. And by all measures, um, the these conditions are worse actually than they were um, back then. And another thing I want to talk about in terms of the, the context, which is very interesting, um, you know, in 1968, Uh, Alabama, Governor George Wallace ran for president, and he won 13.5% of the popular vote. Um, You know, and he had a explicitly um, racist uh, campaign. Um, And, you know, this whole sense of uh, scarcity um, being used to uh, drum up and to reignite uh, racism, discrimination um, in society. Um, and then you know, Nixon won the election. He ushered in sort of law and order, but also an ideological campaign. And this is drawing on um, Dr. Wessel McCoy's words to racialize, feminize, criminalize, and demonize poverty. Just at the time, and I know we're going to talk about this, when productivity is uh, decoupled from wages, Um, and in the next fifty years wages stagnate for all but the richest ten percent. And so, it's interesting to think about that context, um, given where we are today with the new Poor People's Campaign.
0: In King's last Sunday sermon before he was assassinated, which he delivered at the National Cathedral in D.C., he preached about what he described as three revolutions underway, which in combination held both great danger and promise.
1: There can be no gainsaying of the fact that the great revolution has taken place in the world today, in the sense it is a triple revolution. That is a technological revolution with the impact of automation and cybernation. Then that is a revolution in weaponry with the emergence of atomic and nuclear weapons of warfare. Then that is a human rights revolution with the freedom explosion that has taken place all over the world.
0: I think it's a remarkable speech, and as you alluded to a few minutes ago, for a number of reasons, including because it reflects this widespread concern amongst black radicals in the 60s over automation and the disappearance of work. And automation is in the news all the time right now, and I think a lot of people feel like it's this thing that is only now all of a sudden this, this concern, um, especially I think after... After Trump was elected, a lot of people were looking to the Rust Belt and being like, oh, all these jobs disappeared and people are upset. But I think it's really significant that King and other black radicals in the 60s were so concerned about automation at the time at this moment when on the one hand, all of these black workers migrating from the South had just gotten a foothold in the industrial working class. And they'd migrated from the rural South precisely as southern agriculture was being mechanized. So, in a sense, black workers were really the canaries in the automation coal mine.
1: Absolutely, um, I think you know that was one of the reasons. That was one of the reasons that people joined the campaign was that they could see, and it was happening to folks, right? Um, it was happening to miners, you know, mining jobs, as you said, in agriculture and auto plants. Um, people could see um, and were being displaced from work um, and could already start to see that that represents a deep structural change in how the economy functions and that those jobs um, are not coming back. And um, that is a game changer um, for how we think about work, um, how we think about the right to live, Um, and it set the stage for, uh, a new, uh, way of thinking about what, um, what needs to happen in society. You know, it's not just about increasing access, um, because the question is access to what, um, if we don't have, uh, the jobs to, um, secure the means to life then what are we asking for access to or what are we demanding access to? And so the question is not one of production, but of, of distribution. And what is the force? What is the social force that is gonna change the relationship we currently have to distribution, which is we don't have any, any right to it. You know, We don't control the technology. Um, we don't control the, re- the results of all the productivity. Um, We are uh, excluded from it, and we don't have access to it. And so um, what is the social force that can change that relationship of power? And that is the poor and dispossessed, uh, and that is the basis for the original Poor People's Campaign, and it's the basis for the new Poor People's Campaign.
0: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig, as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Dan Denver, your host. We started this show as an experiment in late 2016, after Trump had been elected president and I had been laid off. And it worked. It turns out that thousands of people find our in-depth analysis of capitalism, patriarchy and racism, immigration politics, mass incarceration and the drug war, useful in their struggles to transform our dystopian world into something better. We can only do this show with listener support, which means your support. So please join the hundreds of listeners who have already done so and make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's patreo dot com slash the dig. It'll only take a sec. Thanks, and back to the show. Another thing that's happening along similar lines at this time in the late 60s with the National Welfare Rights Organization is a demand for a guaranteed basic income as a right. And that's something that's, again, come into vogue uh, recently, which I think is great. But this was coming out of the multiracial Black-led left in in the late 60s. Yes. Yes. I want to turn to the new poor people's campaign. I yeah. guess to start if you could just lay out what it is, who it is, what are the goals and how do you plan on accomplishing them?
1: I want to say again that um you know this has been building uh I think you know we're going to see um sometimes the story being that you know this is really something that's happened this year or happened in the last couple of years and Really, this has been building for a long time, um, but certainly for the last 10 years of the groundwork that's been laid um, by the Poverty Initiative, which is now the Cairo Center. Um, and again, you know, learning some of the lessons, actually, from the original campaign, um, looking to build um, that work over 10 years, trying to build um, Strong relationships among leaders of organizations and communities um, that form the basis of um, a lot of the the work that's happening now, and then in uh, 2014, really linking up with um, now Bishop Barber uh, and Repairers of the Breach. Formerly, he was with the NAACP and. Uh, he started an organization called Repairers of the Breach. And that partnership between the Cairo Center and that network of organizations and the repairers um, is really the kind of foundation for the current uh, campaign uh, that's called Poor People's Campaign National Call for Moral Revival. And, you know, first I want to say that, you know, all of the questions about all the goals and Everything cannot be answered yet because this is not going to be a short uh, quick process. Um, this is uh, you know, the beginning of years uh, that we will engage in this in this work. and um, the 50th anniversary, which is coming up in 2018 this year. Is uh, you know the beginning of the kind of public-facing work um, to reignite, relaunch the campaign, um, and thus far um, there's been kind of a call to action, right? To see like who is down, who wants to be involved, um, and there are uh, at least 25 states uh, that have uh, come forward, leaders from 25 states and organizations that are building infrastructure, um, and organizing infrastructure at the state level to be involved. And are these groups
0: that already exist or new groups?
1: It's, uh, a lot of, uh, it's, it's a real variation because they're not necessarily new groups, but they may be groups that have not been engaged in this way before. Um, -hmm. I like to think about how, um, a lot of the work of um, uniting the poor and dispossessed and building our class is somewhat outside of the circuits of capital (laughs) um, that circulate on the left. And so I think that we will find, and from my experience thus far, a greater proportion of organizations that are outside of some of the um, circuits of capital uh, as we've come to know them. But it's open, of course, right? There's lots and lots of people getting on board. In some of the states, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, West Virginia, Kentucky, Alaska, North Carolina, South Carolina, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Ohio, Indiana, Virginia, Colorado, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Kansas, Missouri, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Illinois, Tennessee, Maryland, and D.C. So
0: (laughs) I hope you're reading from a piece of paper because that's a remarkable (laughs) number of states to remember off the top (laughs) of your head.
1: I am. Well, um, but I wanted to share that because, um, you know, I think that there's been a very powerful response uh, among folks who really really have a sense that that it's time um that that we have to do this and this is this is different um this is different than what has been done over the last 50 years um and we need to actually uh pick up where that work was left off
0: what what is it that makes it different i think you alluded to to one thing that makes it different when you said that the groups are outside of who we typically think of when we think of the left.
1: I think that we'll see a greater proportion of those. You know, I think we'll see a lot of groups that um, you know, we that are familiar and that have been active and I think we'll see a greater proportion of, of community organizations and faith organizations and neighborhood and community groups that might be working on a local or regional level and they're joining a statewide process, and sometimes for the first time. Um, And they really are uh, deeply rooted in poor and dispossessed communities. So I wanna encourage people to look at poorpeoplescampaign.org and to check out the fundamental principles there. There's a whole set of principles uh, that really are the foundation for the campaign. I think one of the things that um, makes this campaign unique and uh, is is somewhat distinctive is this question of morality, right? And I think that we have been used to uh, morality being used as a cudgel, right? Um, As as something to sort of to beat us down with um, because of this ideological uh, hijacking really of this sense of morality and this narrowing it around particular sort of cultural and honestly personal issues, like gun, you know rights and abortion and uh, LGBTQ rights and things that are really about you know people's decision making about their own lives, and taken away from actual traditions. You know, the Bible talks about poverty, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. <laughs> um, and morality, though, is fed to us um, by the powers that be uh, as something that, of course, does not indict them, <laughs> right? Does not indict the system. And changing that uh, conception and really reclaiming the sense of morality that Uh, In a moral system, poverty, the existence of poverty is a sin, right? It's immoral for people to be poor in the richest nation in the world and the richest nation that's ever existed. And morality is really tied to structures and systems in our lives. Um, And so really reclaiming and changing that narrative around morality, I think, is one of the uh, most profound things about this campaign. Um, I also think that the campaign taking up, really taking up and owning, and I, this is something I very much appreciate, the the importance of state-based movements, the importance of state-based organizing, um, and really looking at this as a state-by-state process. Um, and especially
0: and- if you look at the last decade or so, when Obama was, you know, the period when Obama was in office, and right-wing and dialogues were taking power in in state houses all over the country and as we know very well from Philly doing things like just eviscerating funding for public education and there was this sort of blind spot about the importance of states for for liberals that that conservatives did not suffer from
1: yes and so the state uh, base nature of this and recognizing that organizing at the state level is crucial. And also, it is necessary uh, for building the power and the unity of the dispossessed across lines of division. Because when we um, stay in major cities, which are some of the most unequal places, actually, uh, when we look at the haves and the have nots, right, they're socially, they can be extremely uh, liberal. Um, but in in terms of places where people can live and survive, they're extremely oppressive. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing to examine. You know, what what is that about? Um, and so when we stay in those places, um, we miss a lot about who is poor. Um, and we miss the opportunity to really bring together all the folks that who can be brought together. And so what we do by working at the state level is that we open it up um, to really seeing where are folks struggling and how do we actually bring together people across the urban-rural divide, across the, the big uh, big R and big D divide, um, across you know the partisan boundary, um, which are things that we have to do right if we are to succeed. Um, and so the state working at the state level allows us to do that and I think that's a powerful thing about this campaign and there's a lot more in the principles right that really lifts up um, the connections between racism poverty the war economy and ecological devastation Uh, dismantling unjust criminalization systems is key to this Um, you know there's there's a lot there that I think we should you know look at and, and really internalize and understand and I think the thing I appreciate about um, this campaign, too, and something that Bishop Barber talks about is that, you know, he says when people ask him, is it race or is it class? He says, it is, <laughs> right? meaning that it's both and that we can't separate them. We can't.
0: And the premise of the question separate. presumes this presumes an incorrect answer. That's right. Because they're not it's not one or the other That's right. Um, or which one's more
1: it is race and it is class and it is gender and it is the structure of our society uh, and how it sorts people into these categories. Uh, It needs winners and losers. And increasingly, it needs actually fewer and fewer workers. And I think that's something that we all, uh, that's all our business. (laughs) That's all our uh, concern, no matter what race you are, what gender you are, where you live, even if you're an immigrant or a citizen.
0: One thing that always bugs me about the race versus class discussion is that it misses how racism works to not only to make life worse for people of color, but also to legitimate systems that make life worse for working class and poor people more generally. Mass incarceration and welfare reform are two very straightforward examples, I think, Welfare was was demonized politically very effectively as something that black welfare queens were mooching off of, which led to the destruction of welfare disproportionately impacting black women, but also many, many poor white women. Um, And with mass incarceration, black people obviously are disproportionately hyper-incarcerated at rates much higher than white people in terms of the rate, but the racist, spectacular punishment of of poor black people in the criminal justice system legitimates a system that, in absolute terms, incarcerates enormous numbers of white people as well. And this race-first-class framing, I think, really keeps people from, from thinking through how these systems of oppression actually function and leave us with these really unfortunate outlooks for political change that have to do with sort of this implicitly affluent white group of allies working with this monolithically Black, poor, oppressed people, rather than actually thinking about what actual solidarity would look like between oppressed people of all sorts.
1: It connects very much to this this question of what is, what is the change that we seek? And I think that, you know, as we see from the original Poor People's Campaign and the people who got on board with that, um, you know, Chicanos from the Southwest and Puerto Rican people and Indigenous people um, and Black folks from the North and the South who uh, had a, a sharper analysis in many ways of automation than we do today and also brought in so many issues that were directly impacting them into this picture of, you know, these are all manifestations of the same problem. People came with, uh, you know, who are organizing around educational inequality. They were organizing around police brutality. They were organizing around independence for Puerto Rico, treaty rights and land rights, all of these things. And they actually came uh, to be part of this movement um, with all of those, you know, with all of those issues, not seeing them just completely separate and siloed issues, but trying to take a look at how are these things manifestations of some root cause problems. But I think that what we saw in the original campaign was that many people who were allies to King in the civil rights movement uh, turned away from him uh, when he started to think about human rights and changing the structures of society and I think we see that distinction today um, with um really this fundamental question of are we talking about restructuring society or are we talking about getting more access um, <clears throat> you know and and tackling racism while buying into poverty and militarism, right? Um you know, I think about. You know the news again, you know the the news cycle of outrage, right, and the social media cycle of outrage lasts for what forty eight hours. And so there was a forty eight hour period of outrage about slavery, you know, open slave markets in Libya. and yeah. you know, people see that in this immediate sense of like, oh my God, this is happening now. And where did that come from, right? in recent history um was, you know, taking out a leader and you know, Clinton. <laughs> um doing this and and talking about it on video and saying he came you know we came we saw he died and laughing right ha, ha, ha. Um, which has led to a breakdown in civil society um and the and what's happening now and but so But she tweeted, she of, tweeted
0: about intersectionality so it's right. uh, it's okay <laughs> fact,
1: and that kind of militarism right um and that kind of um that war economy right that's the war economy right there, and that is deeply embedded, that's deeply connected, right? So if you look at that and you say, oh my God, the racism of that slave market, you also have to say, where did that, how did that happen? And how was our war economy and our foreign policy implicated in that? Um, And who did it, you know? Um, And what was the political context of that? Um, because I think when you do that, you you know that's how you start to see that that some of those co- sort of coalitions that are really um, the kind of the 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 liberal um, uh, elite coalition that will get on board with some aspects of civil rights, but will completely back off of uh, human rights and changing systems and structures, and and in and pinpointing Wall Street and connecting Wall Street to the war economy and to the oppression of people of color here and around the world, and the oppression of poverty of people of all colors here and around the world, um, you'll see people kind of change their tune.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is something that um, the scholar Aziz Rana, who I had on a few months back um, and I'm having on again soon, has written a lot about, which is that in how... in in recent decades, there's this sort of decoupling of domestic politics from from this kind of international vision that in the 60s was was very much present. The The critique of the brutally unequal and racist domestic order was just as a basic common place of, of left analysis in this country seen as inextricably linked to U.S. empire abroad. And that analysis has really frayed in recent decades at a time when, we, when, when it's tremendously urgent, when we're in this permanent war on terror in more countries than I could name right now. And so I think it's really encouraging to see the new Poor People's Campaign tying these issues together through this framework of, of peace and war economy.
1: I think you know something that I'm struck with, you know, more and more is um you know, we like to think about the the flip side of these things, right? Like we have this global economy now and we have this technology and um you know, we don't control it, but but what it's allowed us to see is that it's allowed us to really have more of a sense than ever before probably of what's going on around the world and to feel that other people to feel other people's pain and to see what they're see what's happening to them in a more immediate way. And so especially now it still amazes me that you know we have to um really remind ourselves, you know, it's like <clears throat> so if something is happening somewhere else and it's not happening to me, um does that mean it's okay, right? In this era of you know, you got to have your lawn sign that has your list of things that you believe in. And I want people to believe in all those things, but I want people to believe them for everyone around the world, not just for people in the U S and so, um, I just, I think that that is connection is, is really important. And the other thing I want to say is that, um, in terms of the changing the narrative and the narrative shift around this campaign and looking at, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be a crime to be homeless. Homelessness, right, should be a crime. It's not a sin to be poor. Poverty is a sin. And, you know, the poor haven't failed society. Society's failed the poor, right? So we wanna really shift this narrative. And I had a very visceral moment, you know, walking into the co-op the other day Uh, right in West Philly on Baltimore Avenue. And when I walked in, I passed a man who was um, asking for change. And he was very nice. And he just said, hey, you know, if you have anything on the way out, you know, I'd appreciate it. And I said, yeah, definitely. I walked into the co-op. Now, on the way into the co-op, there was a sign on the window that said, you know, no forms of hate and discrimination will be tolerated here. You know, like there will be no hate on the basis of religion, on the basis of race on the basis of gender on the basis of immigration and you know i just really had to stop and say yeah but we all think it's okay for him to be out there and not be able to come in and get what he needs to eat like that's okay that kind of discrimination is fine
0: <laughs> it's like these cafes that have refugees welcome uh signs and i always just wonder i'm like are you actually offering refugees a meal <laughs> i, I, mean, I mean, repeat, not right? to be I mean, you
1: know like that's exactly that's the that's when we say hegemony and we think about common sense what is common sense reality it's like it's common sense reality to feel that you are the wokest and the best and the best type of person because you believe in these you know this set of things when materially right um People are going through it and they don't have access to what they need. And that's okay. You know, like he can't come in. That discrimination against him as a poor person, and he happens to be black because we are overrepresented among the poor.
0: Especially in Philly.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, like that's okay. But it's not discrimination against him as a black person, (laughs) it's discrimination against him as a homeless person, as a poor person. And that's okay. That's not on the list. So we have to really change and shift that. And that, of course, um, obviously, uh, is putting the system on trial, right? That's attacking some fundamental aspects of how this system functions. We need to build a lot of power to be able to do something like that.
0: I just am close to finishing Poor People's Movements, um, a classic that I had somehow not ever gotten around to Reading in preparation for an interview with Francis Fox Piven in a few weeks, and one of the big questions in that book is how how poor people can exercise political power. And my question for you is about what the theory of change is underlying the new poor people's movement. Like you just said, the political vision you're outlining poses a a, a major. Threat to this sort of neoliberal superficial version of identity politics who people, uh, you know, articulated by by the liberal powers that be currently out of power, but powers that sometimes be who just want a, you know, diverse cast of characters running Wall Street exploitation and imperial warfare. So what you're articulating poses a clear threat to that that vision. What's the theory of how you how you realize that threat? how do poor people successfully flex their muscle in a way that makes the powerful bend?
1: That's a million dollar question, right? (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) I'm hoping you have all the answers figured out.
1: Not to use the capitalist metaphor, of course, but um, I think that um, here, I would say that the process is as much important as the product, you know? And so, if we look at the original campaign, the lessons that we need to learn are about, you know, how, what, you know, did they have in place to, to really build, take the time with the strategic unity among all of the people? Um, and how was that really deepened and made and fortified? You know, um, it wasn't, you know, to the extent that it could withstand King's assassination. And so we know that this process is going to take time and it takes time to build power. And so in terms of the the theory of change, I mean, King said, and this is one of my favorite quotes, I think I said it when I was on your show last time, um, you know, there are millions of poor people in this country with little or nothing to lose if they can be helped to take action together they will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life." Very top of mind, I think about that quote every day. And so the goal of this campaign or the strategy of this campaign is to help us take action together and to build the strategic unity that we need to be able to take action together over time, right? Um, <clears throat> and one of the things about their original campaign
0: And over time, sorry, just to interject briefly, over time is important because not only did the poor people's movement fall apart after King's death, but the National Welfare Rights Organization, after a huge burst of energy in its initial years, fell apart, I think, in two years, three, maybe. Keeping people engaged is this this huge issue.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. The groups that came together and the communities that came together around the, the initial campaign didn't have any experience acting together as a class, right? Um, and, and in some ways that's still true, right? We don't have necessarily the experience of acting together as a class, not just segments of the class or not just particular concerns that are, um, you know, uh, coming in the form of a group of workers, right? But really across a whole class, a very diverse class with people of every gender and every race and every ability and every religion um, who live in every kind of place and have every kind of status right um and so a really honestly to me and i'm speaking you know as a leader in this but also for myself um i'm i i'm not going to share you know like oh here's what we're doing and here's what our goals are and here's our demands what i'm going to say is that building that strategic unity to act together as a class is the strategy in many ways right and so what that means concretely is that we're starting this spring with a season of moral resistance and that's going to be happening in 25 state at least 25 state capitals where for 6 weeks there's going to be civil disobedience actions happening along different themes. And there will also be actions taking place in DC. And that's just the beginning, right? I mean, that's like a trial of like, let's see how it is to take action together, right? Like let's see what that can look like. Let's see um, how we can uh, build our unity and our strategy and our fortitude through that process. So, you know, that, uh, that's the first, this is the beginning, you know, this is really the beginning of a process. Um, but in a way that's similar to our work in Pennsylvania, you know, the strategy is using the campaign to build leaders and to unite the class.
0: You mentioned this, this coming civil disobedience campaign to what degree tactically and strategically given Bishop Barber's leadership is this drawing from the example, which many listeners are probably familiar with, of Moral Mondays in North Carolina?
1: It draws on it, uh, for sure. Um, it draws on it. And I think the experiences in North Carolina uh, are very instructive and useful um, as we get underway. And I think that also the leadership of people in every state is contributing you know, to what this looks like. Um, and how we go about, you know, building the infrastructure at the state level. Um, And so it's definitely drawing on Moral Mondays, and it's drawing on the work of the last 10 years of organizations that have been using this strategy um, in a really uh, deep way to build uh, organizations of poor and dispossessed people um, that are kind of thinking already about how to build across color lines, how to do that um, across lines of division. So I think it's drawing on a lot of uh, pieces.
0: I understand that the entirety of the movement's goals are not already laid out, but with this upcoming wave of civil disobedience that we're going to see in a variety of states, can you lay out what some of the the initial demands or issues or goals are? What, what we might be seeing in the next few months?
1: Yeah, so again, I <clears throat> I really want people to check out poorpeoplescampaign.org and on there you'll see um, under about, you'll see uh, a button that says audit. And there's been this uh, process happening of an audit um, that is drawing from the real stories and experiences and organizing work of people around the country that are part of this campaign. And there's some really amazing people um, that are on in different fronts of struggle that are part of this campaign. And the audit um, is a process of really pulling together um, where are we now 50 years after the first Poor People's Campaign? And the themes, right, which are going to continue to be the themes uh, moving forward are systemic racism, poverty, the war economy and ecological devastation. So in terms of, you know, what the, the kind of, um, content of, um, tactics and demands will be, they'll be drawn from those, those themes, um, and those, those fronts, uh, that are all inextricably linked. And as we know, there's, a there's many, many manifestations of each of those things, um, that people are working on. And so, um, you know, in In a lot of ways, I think we're going to continue to see those and see how um, demands are created based on the manifestations of systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, and ecological devastation.
0: we've We've talked a little about the war economy and the importance of integrating that, the discussion around empire into our analysis of domestic political economy. We haven't talked much about the ecological devastation question, and I think it's also really significant that that that's being incorporated into the Poor People's Campaign's fundamental vision because I think that the environment is often represented as something apart from humans, even though we live in it. And in terms of the politics around the environment, often framed – As an issue primarily of concern to middle class and more affluent people rather than something directly impacting poor people's survival. Can you talk a little bit about the role that ecological politics will play in the campaign?
1: So I think, you know, when we talk about shifting the moral narrative, it's really, again, um, disrupting. Um, these ideologies that have come to, you know, that have become kind of shorthand um, for how things are seen. And so, again, right, um, you know, racism seen only as a problem for Black people or people of color and uh, ecological, um, you know, devastation seen only as an issue that certain communities or white communities care about when in reality, um, again, how inextricably linked they are. I mean, in Pennsylvania, um so many of our prisons are sitting on top of toxic waste and you know we know that out in Fayette County um there is a state correctional institution that's sitting on top of a coal ash dump uh and that coal ash dump is poisoning everyone who's incarcerated inside of there and it's also poisoning the community um and everyone that it's poisoning is poor and so um you know the connection again um, between racism, poverty, and ecological devastation is um, everywhere. If if we look and if we lift it up, um, and so I think that that question of of how we perceive um, and who speaks um, for these issues and who um, is impacted by them are are very. Uh, you know, clear in this campaign. And the campaign is going to lift up those intersections, right, and lift them up and allow them to be, allow people to be seen and heard in ways that disrupt um, the ideologies uh, that the ruling class um, promotes about these issues.
0: In which Trump, obviously, has very much exploited pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord and saying that he's you know, stands with Pittsburgh and not Paris or whatever. And you grew up very close to Pittsburgh in the economically devastated steel town of Manesson. And that's the exact sort of place that he's trying to argue is is harmed by measures taken to protect the environment. Tell me a little bit about how your experience growing up in in Manesson has, has shaped your outlook on on this all.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Manesson until I was 11. And, you know, it's a town of, I think about 20,000 in Westmoreland County. And um, the demographics of the county um, recently looked into this because we're actually organizing, Put People First is doing some organizing in that area. And the demographics of the county um, is about 95% white and 5% Black and the demographics of Manessin, it's actually 13% um, Black and people of color. And and so it's interesting because I didn't grow up in a homogenous environment at all. Um, I grew up in a, you know, if you look at my um, pictures from school, um, you'll see the kids in my class. And um, I was about, you know... um, midway (laughs) between the darkest skin person and the lightest skin person, um, in my class. And, um, a lot of people even now that I'm connected to on, on social media, uh, will say, yeah, Manesson is this place where there's a lot of people that are mixed with black and white and Arab and other backgrounds of people who went to work in the steel mills. And that was, my grandfather was a steel worker. And, um, By the time I came around, the steel mills were closing and my grandparents were on a fixed income and um, we grew our food and we got government um, food, um, bulk uh, cheese and and other things. And, um, you know, all of those things, as well as the people I was around in the school that I went to, where students were still being paddled. Uh, and there was corporal punishment and, um, it was a really, uh, interesting place, uh, to grow up, um, you know, shaped my perceptions, certainly of, of what it's like in Pennsylvania. Um, and after having lived in Philadelphia for 25 years, it's a place in Pennsylvania. It's a kind of experience that many people who are here in the city don't see, right. Would never see, would never know. Um, and so it's, it's, it's what shapes me to understand that it's possible to do statewide organizing in Pennsylvania, um, that there are a lot of people out there. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, the thing that we have to see with, with these ideologies is like, we have to really start to ask ourselves, are we going to wring our hands Or just point fingers and say, well, you know, these people that are listening to this or buying into this are just too stupid, they're worthless. Um, When, in fact, most people, as we know, don't participate in the political process. I mean, you know, we can be angry about who people voted for, but in reality, there's a lot of people to organize who didn't vote for anyone, who didn't participate at all. Um, And a lot of the
0: people who do vote really that does not mean that they were profoundly engaged in the in the process right. let alone all these other people who didn't vote at all
1: right and i think that you know that goes back to this point about you know your your political rights are um connected to your economic rights I and mean, your economic rights are unfulfilled it makes it very hard to fulfill your political rights and i think that we can see that um in terms of how many people just don't participate it's the majority of people who are not participating in the various limited ways in which we allow for participation in this country. So we can either wring our hands and just say, oh, woe is us and we're good and everyone else is bad, or we can organize people and recognize that people are influenced um, by many things, not uh, least of which is their own conditions and then everything that they hear and see. Um, but there are, we have the ability to shape um, what that looks like for people and where their allegiances lie, but only if we engage with them and actually organize them. And when we don't do that, uh, we give them up to someone else to be organized uh, by. And so... huh? I know, thought if you
0: just uh, identified that people were racist and condemned them as racist, then that, that means that we get to win politics.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, <laughs> you know, and I, and again, I mean, I'm, uh, to, to just, just be clear you know, it's again, something that get asked so much is like, well, what should we do about Trump voters? And I just say, we should organize people who are unorganized. You know, we should organize people who um, didn't participate and we should organize people who are hurting and who are suffering. Um, And it's not, um, you know, and I I think that that's, again, you know, the Poor People's Campaign is also, it's a nonpartisan campaign. It would be happening no matter who was in the White House. And it's not going to lift up and give lots of space or give really space to, you know, folks that are in elected office, um, because this is about, um, you know, building power uh, for poor and dispossessed people. And I think that increased participation will be an outgrowth of that. You know, I think that um, that will uh, spur a lot of engagement, you know, um, among people, maybe more than before. But that's not the point of it because this isn't about the parties, actually. And we, you know, it's not um, it's not party over people. Um, It's not just about the power of the party. It's about the power of the people.
0: I think this touches on something that's been an implicit part of a lot of the political fights between the left and the liberal establishment over the past few years, which is what the political coalition that opposes the right will look like. And I think what you're articulating is a coalition that should be a multiracial working class one. By contrast, I think what the liberal establishment often wants is to maintain the the, the current coalition, which is um, a democratic party of affluent urban elites led by those affluent urban elites alongside people of color who have nowhere else to turn because Of the republican party's virulent racism and xenophobia and eric alterman who's a columnist at the the nation recently tweeted something that to me really encapsulates everything about what is wrong with this rich led mainstream liberal movement and he tweeted if trump voters lose their health insurance their jobs their clean air and water i'm totally cool with that fuck their economic insecurity they've destroyed my country just seems like there's this effort to ensure that the left of center of American politics is a coalition between the rich and socially liberal urban and suburban whites and and other people who are just, you know, terrified of of people like Trump. And I think it's such a dangerous idea. And it seems to me like the work you're doing is precisely about building a coalition that's stitched together from below, and that is not premised from the get-go of throwing anyone away?
1: You know, I think it's important to engage, you know, with the political process. And I think it's important to engage um, with participation there. And I think that all of the efforts that people are taking on to um, build participation and to run candidates and to um, increase um, participation are really important and necessary and and people are trying out things and figuring out strategy and I think that's great and I also think that as we organize though you know we have to really build power across some lines that parties don't cross you know um, the the two parties kind of have their their voting blocks and they they work hardest to engage their voting blocks, And I think that um, the power that we need to build from below kind of crosses some of those lines a little bit, and that's okay. And we should do that and we should organize that power because we have to organize the power of working people more broadly and the multiracial working class, which crosses those lines, right? And we won't defeat racism, and we won't defeat poverty unless we can build that kind of force that crosses those lines. So we have to do that. That's incumbent upon us to do. And it's not incumbent upon the parties. And I think that we have to be able to be honest with our own people about, um, you know, the, the structure of our political life, right? I mean, um, you know, this is something that that King actually talked about in terms of The original campaign was that he saw it as a place where we would need to understand ideological, economic, and political forces, right? Not just sort of taking action and doing tactics, but understanding ideological, economic, and political forces. And I think that the current campaign is also going to be this place where we get to learn about that, and we have to learn, right, in order to be effective. Organizers and strategists, we have to learn, we have to understand these ideological, economic, and political forces. And I think it's okay to be honest with our people and to help people understand those forces so that they can engage with them. Um, And I think that lots of sort of traditional work around the mainstream parties is kind of you know, treats people in a transactional way and really thinks about, you know, well, if we can get this person out to vote, they matter to us. And so that's who we're gonna focus on. When actually I think that to build the power that we need to build, we need to have people who have a very rigorous and not sentimental understanding of our political system and can engage with it as such, can engage with it as strategists, but don't engage with it in a way that is not clear Um, about the interests that are represented um, behind it um, and is not clear about what it really means to engage with it. So I just think that, you know, the whole process of building power um, at a state level and, and level that we need to build the multiracial working class has to dispense with illusions about the party system and has to be very rigorously honest with all the people that we're organizing about the nature of that system. And let us make our own determinations and decisions about how and when to engage with that system.
0: Nijmi thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure. I really appreciate it.
0: Nijmi Zorinko is, among many other things, a co-founder of Put People First PA and a leader in the Poor People's Campaign, National Call for Moral Revival. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after expressing relief that he had not, like Martin Luther King, been posthumously sanitized by his enemies, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews really do help put us in touch with new listeners by juicing the mysterious Apple algorithm that ranks podcasts. Whatever. Also, please tell your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please find us on patreon.com/slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation running. Even a few bucks is a huge help.